Let me have a word of prayer, and then we go into the preaching of God's word. Father, we come before you one more time this morning with thankfulness and with gratitude that we're able to gather with your people in this public way, that we're able to open your word and speak it out publicly to all without any let or hindrance, that we're able to gather in your presence. Lord, our prayers that you may feed us this morning. We pray for both speaker and hearers alike, that we may all be challenged and edified and that we may grow by your word. Lord, we know that uh, your word is, uh, will not return to you void. It will accomplish that to which it has been sent. And so we pray this morning that as our hearts have been prepared to receive your word, that it may indeed fall up upon us in such a way that we will leave this place more determined to serve you in a way that's more committed and to follow Christ in a way that emulates his life. We pray for your blessing upon us now in the Savior's name and for his sake alone. Amen. We are back in Philemon this morning, and we are preaching through that section which forms the main uh, body of this epistle. Uh, we, we're working through verses 8 to 20, uh, which is the main body of the epistle. It's that which Paul had uh, intended Philemon to understand. And we've titled that section, uh, The Tale of Three Men, because these are three men who are engaged, well, Paul's engaged with two other men. It's Philemon Onesimus a master and slave, and Paul, the pastor uh, of these two men, uh, as he tries to bring them together and reconcile them in a way which would be beneficial to both of them and will continue to refresh the saints in Colossae. Uh, we preached our introductory sermon about this uh, last time I preached, which was verses 8 to 14, which we called a loving appeal. And that sermon covered three areas uh, an appeal to Philemon on the basis of love, an appeal for Onesimus as a dear child, and an appeal to Philemon's freedom to choose. And so he's, we made it very clear in that, in that sermon that Paul was leaving Philemon all the latitude he needed to decide to do the right thing. Paul was strongly guiding him in that direction, but leaving him the latitude to make up his mind and do the right thing. This morning we are going to be preaching the second part of that series, which started out as a three-part, but soon may become a four-part, and I'll explain to you at the end of the sermon why that will be. But we are going to focus this morning primarily on verses 15 and 16 as the, as the, as the launch point for our sermon, but it's not going to keep us out of other verses, which we have to go there because of the way verses 15 and 16 has been written by the Apostle Paul. So let's start reading from verse 10 and move our way down to verse 16. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. Verse 15. For this purpose is why he was parted from you for a while. Sorry, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. 
especially to me, but much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. May God add to us this reading of his word and any other scriptures we may refer to as we try and unpack what Paul is saying to Philemon in this very important and remarkably complex little letter. The more I, I try and unpack and understand what Paul is writing, um, I'm amazed at how much he squeezes into these uh, a few lines in an epistle, in a letter which uh, to many may seem almost like a postscript to what he was saying to Colossian, the Colossian church. And yet it is an important letter because it challenges us, challenges us in so many ways that we uh, eventually end up resonating with what uh, Paul is telling Philemon to do. In verses 4 to 7 of this epistle, Paul focuses very clearly on Philemon and on his attributes. Um, these uh, strong points in Philemon's life he highlights, and we've gone through that. And we remind ourselves as Paul talks to, uh, to Philemon and reminds him of his love for the saints in verse 5. In that same verse, he reminds Philemon uh, of his faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two attributes um, form kind of the core of Philemon's uh, testimony. Um, a man who appears to be above reproach, a man who is well-loved and who loves others, and a man who, has, uh, who appears to all intents and purposes to be a, a stalwart in the Colossian church. We saw that Paul highlighted his effective sharing of his faith in verse 6, how that became part of his life and how that effective sharing of his faith resulted in the refreshing ministry to the saints. And verse 7 reminds us that this is exactly what Philemon did. He was the one who refreshed the hearts of the saints. He was a man who was in touch with his family uh, that he worshipped with. He was not a, a bench warmer. He wasn't an absentee uh, brother. He was there. Well, it had been hard to be absentee. The church was in his home, but nonetheless, uh, I've been to places where we've been in people's homes and the people are not there. It's, it's happened. Uh, you'd be surprised. Things like that are not unusual. But this was really a man who was part of the church at Colossae. These attributes are highlighted by Paul as he prepares Philemon to receive back into his home the slave would run away. This is the whole point of this epistle. A slave would run away, uh, and Paul's preparing the slave master to receive the slave back. Now, normally, uh, that would happen under extremely uh, horrendous uh, conditions. Slaves being returned to the, to the master of running away after running away would face tremendous uh, retribution. Paul's trying to assuage all of that. Paul's taking this in hand, and is preparing the way so that Philemon's prepared to receive Onesimus back. Onesimus doesn't go home fearing what may happen to him. Paul, uh, Philemon, Philemon will have to draw deeply from these qualities we've just said about him if he, has, if he was to be open to receiving Onesimus with a loving rather than a retributive attitude. Onesimus is coming home. Philemon's community, where he's living, Colossi, is possibly expecting to see what form of retribution he's going to deal out to this runaway slave. And Paul is saying that's not what has to happen. And Paul takes him to this, and then we see this morning, as we get to verses 14, uh, 15, 16, how Paul emphasizes that. <clears throat> Things had changed in the life of Onesimus, and Philemon had to make accommodation for this change. Things are not the same as they were before he ran away. And so while verses 4 to 7 concentrates uh, mainly on Philemon and his, um, his attributes, 
From verse 10 down to verse 16, Paul turns the spotlight onto Onesimus. And so both of these men feature in these verses, but there seems to be a turning of emphasis to Onesimus in verses 10 to 16. Uh, in verses 10 and the verses following, we're given insight into the life of Onesimus. We get a picture of what this man is like. Uh, all we know about Onesimus is what we hear from him in this epistle, and one uh, comment about him in the Colossian epistle. What do we know? Well, we know from verse 16 that he's a slave, uh, and we're going to focus on that this morning near the end of the sermon. We know he's a slave. We know he ran away from a godly environment, still unsaved. He's not saved until he meets Paul in Rome, uh, as we see in verse 10. When Paul says, I became a father to him while in prison, meaning that he was instrumental in bringing Onesimus to the point where he would repent of his sins and receive Jesus Christ as his Savior. So he was his father in the the spiritual sense. And so Onesimus becomes a Christian in, in, in Rome, having run away from a godly house, still unsaved. And that's significant. Onesimus had the reputation of being useless, verse 11. I think of every indictment you could, you could lay upon someone's shoulders, that is probably one of the worst. Imagine walking up to something and saying, you are totally useless. Uh, how do you come back from that? Um, I know that sometimes we are tempted to say that to people in our immediate circles. and We bite our tongues because we know there may be uh, repercussions, but Paul says clearly, he was useless, possibly a trait that was uh, two of the, of the slaves in the area from where um, Onesimus came, possibly. But whether that may be the case or not, Onesimus was useless. And we know that he's been sent back to the master that he had deserted. He was a deserter. He was an absconder. He had left his place of responsibility. He had run away from the person who owned him, and there were consequences under all normal conditions. Paul is not keen to send him back. Paul says very clearly, I would rather keep him with me. Paul would be glad to keep Onesimus with him indefinitely, as he says in verse 13. But Paul has uh, a a greater desire than just keeping Onesimus to himself, uh, where Onesimus could serve him while he was in bonds. Uh, Paul is committed to seeing the slave and the master reconciled. Now more than slave and master, now as brother and brother. And verse 16, we'll touch on that. So having said all of that, and just mentioning verse 16, we segue right into that part of the book for this morning's sermon. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever, no longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 15 starts with a word for, a very small three-letter word which has huge significance. Uh, the for at the beginning of verse 15 serves to join, to get, join together the this of the preceding verses to the so that at the end of verse 15. So Paul is linking something together. Paul has established a certain uh, a paradigm through stating facts and through uh, reaching out to both Onesimus and to uh, Philemon. And, and Paul is now going to take that and come to a, to a conclusion from that or an outcome that is required because that's being applied. For this that's happening in verse four, 10 to 14 took place 
so that verse 15b could become a reality. That's important, and that, was, that, that little bit 4 tells us that for introducing something that has a result because of uh, a, a, something that happened before that. And in, and in these things that Paul's referring to, this, uh, they can be summarized into three areas. Uh, from verse 10 to verse 14, number one, God's sovereignty in salvation. Number two, God's sanctification through salvation. And number three, God's security in salvation. Now, all of that falls packed into Philemon. A uh, couple of verses. You may think, well, well where, is it? where is it? It's there. It's our duty to go and dig and find out uh, how the text brings it out to us. So I've mentioned I'm going back to verses 10 to 14. I'm not, re- I'm not going to be re-preaching the last sermon. Uh, that was focused primarily on Philemon. This morning we want to follow Paul's lead as he focuses on Onesimus by pointing out that this, what happened in verses 10 to 14, provides the basis of understanding the so that in verse 15. So Paul is going to take us along a, a logical route as to what has to transpire because of certain things being in place. And because Paul takes Philemon there in the letter, we're going to follow the author's direction. Point number one, God's sovereignty in salvation. Uh, thinking primarily of verse 10. Onesimus lived in the home of a believer. We know that Philemon had a good testimony, and yet Onesimus did not come to salvation in Philemon's home. Think about that. The household that Onesimus served, the household in which he was a slave, was the home to the local church. The local church at Colossae gathered in that home whenever there was a cause for a church corporate meeting. So not only was the owner of the house a renowned and to all intents and purposes a faithful, committed Christian, but the entire church met in that home. We know from Colossians chapter 3 verse 22 that there are slaves in the church at Colossae, because Paul addresses them in Colossians. So there are slaves who are saved, who are in this church at Colossae, and the assumption would be, and I think it's a reasonable assumption, that Onesimus uh, probably knew some of these slaves. Uh, I don't think they hung it in the coffee shop. I don't think Vida Cafe was open to slaves in Colossae at that time. I think they kind of met uh, in the course of duty, but there were slaves, people of the same social strata as Onesimus, people that with whom he could commiserate, people who understood his troubles as he understood this. So they were, they were also believing slaves in this church at Colossae. So Onesimus was, was exposed to several believers in Colossae, yet he remained unsaved in Colossae. This does not mean that Philemon or his fellow slaves of Onesimus or the church did not witness to Onesimus. The text is silent on those specifics. However, it simply means that Onesimus remained blind and dead to the gospel despite living in an environment that was charged with the gospel. You may wonder how is it possible. Well, we see that every single day. People that live under the sound of the gospel, exposed to the gospel, uh, hear the gospel and remain unchanged. And we beat ourselves up for thinking that, well, we haven't preached hard enough. We haven't kind of twisted their minds to, uh, to a, the right degree. We haven't got into their heads and convinced them. Uh, we need to see from this epistle that it doesn't work that way. Robert has really taken us through that this morning. Evangelism uh, only works. The outcomes only take place when God works. God works in the preaching of the gospel. 
God works through those saints who are left behind on this earth to preach and to witness to others. But eventually and ultimately, only God does the work of saving. He was simply blind and did the gospel. But God remains sovereign in salvation. Have you already chosen who you will save? And we know that God chooses those who he will save. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 and 4 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So God knows who he has chosen who will be saved. God then also chooses when the person is saved. And God chooses under what conditions the person is saved. And so we sometimes are frustrated when the gospel is preached and we share and nothing happens. We may think the time is right for us. The time for salvation is in the hands of God. God has chosen, God calls, God is predestined, and God knows when it's time to point to that person's life, uh, faith that will turn him to salvation. We don't stop preaching. I don't think Philemon stopped preaching. I don't think the church stopped witnessing. And I'm sure that there were faithful slaves who were believers, they witnessed. However, salvation takes place in God's time. Onesimus first had to run away, try to lose himself in the crowds in Rome, and then end up in a, with Paul in the Roman prison before he was saved. He traveled over 2,000 kilometers to Rome, trying to run away from the place where the gospel was. A little bit like Jonah, isn't it? Running away from God's word and eventually uh, getting hit by the word bang on. He ran through extremely dangerous territories, moving from Colossae, uh, to Rome over 2,000 kilometers across an entire point of a continent, across two seas, a dangerous trip. It wasn't walking down the road and hiding in your friend's backyard. This was a, a, a horrendous trip, and yet he's trying to get away from what he thought was his greatest problem uh, facing his master. The greatest thing he was running away was from his own sin, but God met him in due course. He was under constant threat of being arrested and being severely punished. He was totally unaware that he was on a collision course with God who had determined to save him. God had determined to save Onesimus. He was chosen. We know that is how people end up being saved because God has by his grace called us. Uh, why? We don't know. Uh, there's nothing in and of ourselves that warrants that kind of grace. God has been merciful having forgiven our sins on, uh, in Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Why? We don't know. That's God's prerogative. But Onesimus was one of those who had been blessed to be called by God. So against all odds, Onesimus ends up in Paul's company, and he finds salvation. Not by, not by Philemon, not by the Colossian church, not by his, 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 his slave friends. Uh, he finds salvation uh, at the foot of Paul in a prison in Rome. And so Paul says, perhaps... Him coming to salvation was why he was parted from Philemon for a while. This is encouragement for us. You and I know of many people in our own uh, sphere of, of, of life that are unsaved, that remain unsaved, and we've given up. Many of us know of others in our family who, to whom we've preached often, to whom we've witnessed, and we've got to the point of trying to share the gospel with frustration, and we've given up. And we have already relegated them to a lost uh, eternity. Uh, we've already said to them, if not openly, not uh, audibly to ourselves, that 
this person is probably not elect. Not a call we can make. Thank, thank the Lord it's a call we can't make. We cannot see the hearts and minds of men. Only God can. But this encouragement to those of us who have family members who are not saved, those who are living with us and we, we long to see them become part of this family, keep preaching, keep witnessing, keep bringing the gospel, keep evangelizing. And if they have been called by God in due time, God will save. You may only be doing the watering. Someone else has done the planting. God gives the increase. And so we see that uh, Philemon has to run away from home, run to, uh, um, to Rome, end up before the prison, and I'm convinced it was not by design, um, and he ends up there so that God's sovereign will in salvation is carried out. God sovereignly saves. Number two, God's sanctification through salvation. And this takes us back to verse 11. Here's a quote from a GTY, Grace to You pod. True sanctification, according to Scripture, is the process of God's transforming work in your life. In the moment of your salvation, you are declared justified by the Lord through the sacrifice of His Son and freed from the guilt of sin. From there, sanctification frees you from the pollution of sin, helping you to destroy sinful patterns and relinquish your former wickedness. The change done in Onesimus was dramatic. He'd gone from useless to useful. We have no details for the reason why Onesimus ran away. We do not know under what circumstances he absconded. No specific crime is mentioned. Not even the Apostle Paul expresses certainty. He says if he has done anything wrong. All we do know for sure is that Onesimus was useless to Philemon. The word useless is the antithesis of what his name means. Onesimus' name means useful. But he was useless. And this word carries the implication of being, uh, of causing loss with detrimental effects. So the word that Paul used, if it describes Onesimus uh, fully, meant that he would brought dire consequences to his relationship with Philemon. We don't know what Onesimus did or did not do. But we do know that whatever it was, it was bad. He was a useless slave to his master. And Paul informs Philemon that all this has changed. I don't know if Philemon heard his, could believe what he read. I don't know what went to Philemon's mind when he read that Paul said, he who was once useless is now useful. I'm not sure if Philemon had started thinking about things that were so bad that they could probably never change. Uh, we so often label people with uh, the, the accusation that leopards' spots don't change, or leopards don't change their spots. Well, here was one leopard whose spots were, was permanently changed. And this was a dog that learned to new, learn new tricks. He that had been useless had now become useful to both Philemon and to others. Salvation had changed Onesimus. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in salvation had changed him. It had freed him from the pollution of sin, which it does to everyone who is saved. It enabled him to destroy the sinful patterns in his life, and this is what sanctification is. It's as the sinful patterns in our lives are eradicated gradually, bit by bit, as we allow the Holy Spirit to uh, bring to our understanding and to challenge our hearts and to empower us to live in, in the light of the scriptures that we have learned so often. Uh, it empowered him to relinquish the wickedness of his former useless life. He no longer what, was what he was because he's now indwelled by the Holy Spirit, which made him into a new creation. 
He wasn't recycled. He wasn't kind of fixed up and patched up. This wasn't a panel beating job. This was a totally makeover, a totally new creation. Onesimus had been saved and he was changed into a new man. In Corinthians, for our own edification, uh, thinking about how Onesimus was changed, in Corinthians we remind him of uh, this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is a very clear description of what the unsaved, the unredeemed, the unrepentant look like. And that's the world without Christ. And Paul says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Just like Philemon, we were once useless to God. We have been made useful by the work of the cross. And what we once were, we no longer are. The way we were born has been changed through the new birth into being something totally different. We are now children of God. We are children of light, having fallen being children of darkness. We are no longer no long under the domain of darkness. We are in the kingdom of the, of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So, not only should we keep evangelizing those who we think are beyond salvation because it's taken so long for the penny to drop, but we also have to realize that God sovereignly changes uh, our lives through salvation. Salvation is a life-changing experience uh, as we die a death with Christ and die to the old life and die to a sinful life and we are raised with him in a new life. And so as we uh, live this life, uh, encouragement comes from men like Onesimus, men who through God proved he could change over completely. Point number three, God's security in salvation. Once saved, always saved. That's something we try and not say. We kind of feel uh, maybe it's just too, too much of a, of a glib saying, but it is true. Once God has saved you, you are always saved. Once God has made you his own, you're never going to go back to being a child of Satan again. Once God has regenerated you, you don't die again. Once God has given you this new life, you live in the power of this, of this new life. You don't go back to being another person. Sometimes your behavior may look like that. And very often we are guilty of uh, going back to the leeks and the garlic of Egypt uh, rather than enjoy the manner that God has given us now. Uh, and very often we have to repent of that and go through a sanctifying process so that we are able to then uh, uh, enjoy the the, the, the blessing that God gives in this life to live a life that is a saved life. Once saved, always saved. And God has given us security in salvation. The motivation of Paul's letter to Philemon is to prepare Philemon for the changed relationship that now exists between him and Onesimus and to prepare him for the consequence of this change. In verse 12, Paul said he's sending Onesimus back home. But things will not be the same. Things have changed. Things are going to be a lot different. The master-slave relationship is going to be reinforced, not necessarily replaced by a brother-to-brother -brother relationship. 
It is not clear from the text what Paul expects Onesimus to be set to be set free. Very often there is a sense that Paul wants Onesimus to be set free. Well, it's not clear from the text. It's a it is conjecture, and we may get there at some time. Uh, but it is clear that Paul is sending him back, a different man, a changed man. We do know that a new relationship has been established. Onesimus is now a beloved brother. The relationship has, was established while they were departed, so this is important. Philemon had received a new brother without knowing a brother was born. While Onesimus was in Rome with Paul, he came to salvation. He was placed in that universal church of Jesus Christ. And at that very moment, he became a brother to Philemon. And this will practically be seen when he gets home and returns to a local church, when he lives out the good of what he now is in the universal church. And this relationship that, that has been established by God in the life of Onesimus uh, will be binding on them for eternity because of their shared eternal security. We are placed in the invisible church of God of salvation. We enjoy fellowship in the local church where God has placed us. And the church will share each other's fellowship in eternity forever. We will be with him, but also with each other. How can we deduce this from verse 12? Does verse 12 talk that well? Let's look at the end of verse 15. The end of verse 15 says this, and let me read that to you. That you might have him back forever that you might have him back forever in verse 12 we read that paul is sending him back he's sending him to philemon and he and, and he emphasizes it at the end by saying you will have him back forever the english word forever it appears in this verse appears in the new testament about 69 times in the new testament and in every occurrence it is used to indicate something eternal Paul is sending him back and saying he's going to be uh, back with you forever, uh, joined to you forever. And uh, the word forever is a word that means eternal. Every time it's been used, it is used in the New Testament to, to indicate eternal things. In John 3.16, it was used to indicate eternal life. It's used to indicate eternal fire in Matthew 18. It's used to, to indicate eternal damnation in Mark, eternal weight of glory, eternal dominion. And so when Paul says he's sending him back forever, he means forever. And if it doesn't mean that eternal in Philemon verse 15, then this would be the only exception. But I believe this clearly conforms to the common meaning used in Scripture. Paul intends something more than a temporal earthly relationship. And this can be seen in verse 16 where Paul says this, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is sending Philemon back because there's been a relationship established that's permanent and that will last forever. When Paul says going back in the flesh, it simply means in the body. He's going to be joining Philemon in the body, but also in Christ. And being in Christ then makes this relationship eternal permanent. Paul exuberates in the beloved brother he shares with Onesimus, both in the flesh for a short time and in the Lord, but he reminds Philemon that the brotherhood between him and Onesimus is more significant since they were experiencing everyday personal physical contact 
as brothers in Christ in the church of Colossae. But more than that, they are brothers in the Lord. Since they will always be in the Lord, they will always be brothers. Onesimus has come to salvation, has become a new man, and now is able to share in a brotherly bond with his once estranged master. Perhaps this was why he was parted from Philemon. Paul uses that phrase so strongly, he's placed it so strategically when he says, perhaps this is why this took place. We usually recognize eternal security as being but Christ for all eternity. And it does mean that. But there's also the concomitant truth that we will be with each other forever. Remember that we are not just going to be with Christ, which is the glorious truth we face. We're going to be together in eternity. 1 Thessalonians 4 reminds us about that, that we'll be caught up together. We will see the Lord, those who did will be raised up, and we will be caught up together. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so we move up to the Lord as the church. We, each other, sharing in each other's fellowship. Therefore, moving away from verse 15, we need to note the one thing that Paul does. He expresses caution in saying these things. Paul uses the word perhaps, perhaps, perhaps for a while. He had become a new man, and because of this, uh, he had been changed. I just lost the notes. So, Paul has used this phrase, Perhaps this has happened, and we want to be careful that we uh, understand why he's saying that. Paul is best qualified to make a declarative statement about what has happened to Onesimus. Paul has apostolic authority. Paul has first hand knowledge of the situation between Philemon and Onesimus. Paul knows the full context of the events in which this took place. He has personal history with both parties. Yet he makes allowance for the limitation of his uh, human knowledge. Something has taken place that to many appear to be obvious, but Paul is careful not to intrude into the sovereign work of God. And this can be seen by his use of the word perhaps. Perhaps. This does not mean we have no assurance that God will work. What it does mean is that uh, God works in his own way, in his own time, and he works with certainty. God has uh, control over when things take place, and God has control over the future. simply means we have no knowledge of when and how God works. But we can be sure that whatever God has proposed to do, he will accomplish. And so we find that uh, this, this man, Onesimus, who has uh, left um, his hometown of Colossae as a, as a slave, an unsaved slave, a man with no future, uh, no future in glory, comes back, he's going to be sent back as a man who's been changed and changed permanently. Changed in a way that Philemon had no idea who would have happened to him. So let me go back just to the official memories of where we are. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much but much more to you both in the flesh and in the lord as we look at uh, his life we are reminded by the fact that uh, this change was, was was imminent it had to happen it simply means that uh, god had changed the man who he was calling to himself 
and the and 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 the assurance we have that God does a work that His purpose to do is taken from Isaiah chapter forty-six. Let me read this to you. This will give us an idea of exactly how God works and why He works in the way He does. He says in Isaiah forty-six verse eight, "Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like Me. We serve a God who is incomparable, declaring the end from the beginning." And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Call, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from the far country. I've spoken, I will bring it to pass, I've purposed, and I will do it. God was committed to Onesimus because by Onesimus being saved was like all of our salvations, it brings glory to God, this work of grace. And mercy, accomplished on Calvary's cross, is worked out in the lives of those who are least worthy of it. And their uselessness is changed into usefulness. And God is glorified thereby. What is important to note is that Paul uses this word, perhaps. Uh, Paul is not intruding into the sovereign work of God by saying that this is something we should uh, lay a finger on. Paul is careful to not intrude into God's sovereign work, but he makes place for that by saying, perhaps this is why uh, Onesimus left your home so that you could find salvation at, uh, at Rome. We are well to, to imitate the apostle by making uh, careful pronouncements about things that we think we know God is doing. This is a lesson to us. Right in the gospel, Paul is careful not to presume on God's sovereignty. And so we should do exactly the same thing. This is a lesson to us today as we present the gospel to those who are unsaved. We presume things which we should not. We are simply called to preach and, and show the word to those who are called, being called to be saved. And so Paul has met up with Onesimus. His life has been changed, and he is indeed a changed man to all intents and purposes. There's one more point we must address as we consider verse 16. And that is the thing that Paul says about Onesimus. He says he is no longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. He is a beloved brother. I said earlier, uh, many seem to think that Paul is uh, moving towards having Onesimus freed from, uh, from, his slave, from his slavery, but that's not clear from the scripture. However, he is a bondservant, uh, but Paul says now he's more than the bondservant. Onesimus was a slave. In the Old Testament, the word that closest approximate slave is the word eved. Uh, it's a word used in the Old Testament when referring to those who are in servitude. But the practice of slavery in Israel under the law was nothing like the modern-day concept of slavery that has been shaped by antebellum slavery of the American South. Today we have a concept of slavery that's totally foreign to the Scriptures especially, particularly to the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, we find that there are about six words that can be translated into the word servant, another form of servitude. And depending on the role the person fills, depending on which way they serve, they would be called a specific word, of which there are six in the Greek language. The best of that is, the best known is the word diakonos. We've heard that word. The other word that's used for servitude, and it's used here in Philemon, is the word doulos. Uh, and that word is translated slave. Now, you may, be, you may read about this elsewhere, and there are some Bible teachers who uh, defend this 
vociferously that this should only be ever be translated slave, and I think there's grounds for that, because that is exactly what this word captures, a slave. The word um, covered a wide range of slavery, but ultimately the person who was a doulos, as, far as Onesimus was, was a slave. And in this verse, the ESV, which we have the ESV, you'll notice that they use the word bondservant, while the majority of the other texts use the word slave, while the ESV um, writers, uh, translators, have chosen to use a word which has a broader application, uh, purely because they see it fitting in the way they put it together. But very often the word slave has become touchy, and so we don't use it. So when you see the word bondservant in verse 16, Paul is saying that Onesimus is a slave. The Bible's transparent and balanced dealing with slavery as only the accusation of being promoting slavery. Uh, the Bible does not promote slavery. Um, perhaps this is why so many Bible expositors dumb it down to say bondservant. So don't be thrown by the fact that your ESV says bondservant. Uh, that is the translator's choice. Uh, the word means slave. And despite the diverse and complex nature of slave, slavery universally, most people think of slavery only in terms of the definition of slavery in the American South. Basically, that is the epitome of slavery, and all slavery looks like that. Well, that's not the only form of slavery, and we will get to that at another time. Here are some things to consider about slavery as we close out the sermon. Antebellum slavery does not define all types of slavery. The slavery in the Deep South was abusive, oppressive, dehumanizing, and unbiblical. It was not unique in its atrocities, but it was equally not the overarching definition of slavery. Neither is the slavery defined by the practice in South Africa. We were exposed to that. Our ancestors were. Our forefathers were. In the Dutch Cape Colony. It was oppressive and dehumanizing. It's not the only form of slavery. And today many people conflate all forms of slavery into the antebellum mold. The point of the Bible and, uh, they point to the Bible and say, see, this is what the Bible promotes. The Bible doesn't. Nothing is heard from the truth. The Bible does promote a form of slavery, which we will get to at another sermon. We are all slaves of Christ. And so slavery, uh, like so many words which has bad connotations, doesn't always have a bad connotation. But the model of slavery is seen in the lives of men like Onesimus. He was a slave. He was uh, a man who was in servitude. Uh, he didn't own himself. He was a slave. Although the Bible doesn't promote slavery, it clearly condemns slave trade. I want to point this out to you because we're going to get there in the next sermon. I'm going to just prepare you for that. This man, Onesimus, was a slave. Uh, we can't get away from that fact. But the Bible does not promote slavery. In fact, it condemns slave trading in very clear tones. Let me quote to you from Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, where the Bible says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. The Old Testament clearly uh, condemns the buying and selling of humans. Uh, this was clearly condemned uh, from between Israelites. Uh, Israel did acquire uh, foreign slaves through trade, uh, but certainly amongst themselves, they were not uh, permitted to buy and sell people. What about the New Testament? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul gives a, a, a list of things that are ungodly. Uh, he speaks about those who are lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, 
People are unholy and, prof- and will profane. Those who strike their fathers and strike their mothers, those are murderers. And in verse 10, he says this, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality and enslavers, these uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Enslavers are slave traders. So Paul, uh, Moses condemns slave trading, and so does Paul. The Bible does not condone, uh, does not condone or promote slave trading. I tell you this because I think we are faced with it today. Today, this has been used as a way to better us. Um, it was common practice in the days of Philemon. It was common practice in the days of Onesimus. It was an accepted part of the economy, and we will deal with that. Uh, but for the time being, I want you to bear this in mind, that the Bible doesn't promote slavery. It only controls it. It, uh, it sets up laws to protect those who are slaves, uh, and God remains, even in the process of slavery, sovereign. Sovereign over all human beings, sovereign over their salvation, and sovereign over those whom he calls to himself. Paul takes uh, the step further in this relation between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus has become much more than a slave. He's become a brother in the Lord, and therefore Philemon had to extend to him love and compassion. As he who to any brother, this is where the 16 goes, that Paul says he's coming back to you. He's coming back more than a brother, or more than a slave. He's no longer just a slave. Uh, and that dynamic, Paul doesn't clearly say should, should stop happening, but Paul does remind that they're not brothers in Christ. And Paul reminds the slaves in, in, uh, in Colossians, as Peter does in his first epistle, that slaves who are believing slaves should uh, serve their masters diligently uh, and with all that they have. He also speaks to, Paul speaks to slave owners to tell them how they need to uh, deal with their slaves. And so Paul is careful to bring Onesimus back into a, into a um, convention that by and large was oppressive. Uh, by and large had, had areas where people were dehumanized. And he says, you're coming back to a very different dynamic. It's important to understand the different aspects of slavery, especially since the present social political agenda demands reparations for slavery. We are faced with this in the scriptures. We should not run away from it. We should embrace the understanding of what this means. And so we'll pick that up in perhaps a next sermon. So in conclusion, as we come to an end, what we learn from today's sermon, uh, as we look at the life of Onesimus, as he's being prepared to, re- to return to Philemon. Number one, God is sovereign in control of all the situations of life. Even things that seem wrong to us are including God's divine plan for us. Onesimus running away from uh, Philemon would have appeared to be the wrong thing to do. They absconded. It was not the thing that you expect a slave to do. He had run away. He had done whatever he had done, which was wrong. And in all of that, God remains sovereign in control. Uh, we quoted so many times the selling of Joseph by his brothers into Egypt, uh, into the hands of slave masters where he was abused before becoming the prime minister of Egypt. And God says so clearly as, through Moses, as he says in, in Genesis 50 verse 20, what you intended for, for evil... Uh, God intended for good, as Joseph speaks to his brothers. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So we must never lose sight of the fact that God is sovereign in control. You and I may grow frustrated with the gospel not seeming to have an effect. We are not all seeing. We are not omniscient. Uh, We don't know what's happening in the lives of people. As we share the gospel, God um, brings increase. I'm reminded of something that happened last week. Uh, two ladies rocked up here who had 
simply receive a tract dropped in the box. Now, they both profess to be Christians, and we praise the Lord for that. But even a simple thing like that, we have no idea what we have done in simplicity God may use to bring someone under the sound of the gospel. They could well have been unsaved, and that may have happened in the past. So do not despise the little we do in the gospel and seem to think it's not of any significance. It is. Every time we share the gospel and every time we spread the word of God, God uses that uh, to draw people to himself, and those who are not drawn to himself will be condemned by those very words as they reject God um, uh, because they reject the gospel. So God is sovereign control over the situations of life, especially that which is pertinent to salvation. Number two, God changes us completely when he saves us. This is tremendous. I know that when you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you get to 12 o'clock, it doesn't feel that way. We are human. Uh, we are plagued by uh, human failures. And I know that there are times when we cry out if we could only be different. We will be. Uh, draw joy and encouragement this that one day we will be. One day we will be saved from all the warts and the sores and the blemishes of this life. But till then, God has chosen to keep us here, that we should be uh, lights and salt in a world that's dark, a world that's lost uh, desire for the things of God. But make no mistake about this, you have been changed. I have been changed. And our prayer to God daily should be that this change may become evident in our lives. We may become like uh, Philemon, a man who evidently, openly uh, acknowledged uh, the saints, uh, refreshed their hearts, uh, was an encouragement to them, and now is being prepared to receive back one who did so much wrong to him, even though that, that wrong remains undisclosed. And number three, we have a hope that extends beyond the impact of the present evil day. We are secure in Jesus Christ. Once saved, always saved. If you have been saved, you will not become unsaved. That, uh, that uncertainty is a seed planted in your heart by the devil and no one else. Uh, you, your salvation is not wrapped up in your or my strength, your or my ability, your or, your or my merits, or the level of the work we are doing. Your security is wrapped up in Christ himself who won our salvation for us. He died that we may live. He lives in the power of an endless life, and we will be raised as he has been raised to live with him forever, to reign with him and to be with him when he sits on his throne, the throne of David for a thousand years reigning with him, and then to enter the eternal state still with him, the bride of Christ, redeemed by Christ, won over by Christ, and kept by Christ till the end. God is sovereign in control of all things in life, particularly salvation, God changes us completely when he saves us, and so through a sanctifying process, like Onesimus, we are changed, and God keeps us till the end. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse says this, uh, 1 verse 3. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the security and the assurance of our salvation. It's been kept for us by one who died for us, who by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Brother and sister, we should take courage from this epistle to Philemon. There's so much about the that reflects our lives. 
as we once were. There's so much about Philemon that reflects what we should be. And so these two men are almost the two halves of our lives when we play our lives out spiritually uh, in the light of this book. This is not a, a, a letter to be put away. This is a letter that's relevant and pertinent and uh, powerful for a day. And so finally, our brother in Christ should override and should supersede and dominate all other relationships we have with each other. Like for Lehman and Onesimus, these two men were uh, as far apart as men could be. Master and slave, um, a grieved owner, uh, derelict worker, um, a different parts of society. They were as far apart, a saved man and an unsaved man. They were as far apart as men could be, and yet Christ brings them together. And Paul says, you need to make this work. We too are beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as Philemon needs to make every accommodation for Onesimus coming back as a new uh, believer. Remember Paul says to the Colossian church, I'm sending back Tychicus with these letters and, uh, and our beloved brother Onesimus. So he's become the beloved brother not only of Philemon, but of the church of Colossae. We share that same beloved brotherhood and sisterhood. It's incumbent on us to take our lesson from Philemon and from uh, Onesimus and from the wonderful pastoral teaching of Paul that we may emulate these men as they emulate Christ, who is indeed the one who's made all this possible. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your uh, saving grace. Lord, we, we know that uh, many of us who look down upon men like Onesimus and we have people in our purview who we think are perhaps not good enough. And Lord, we, we, re- we acknowledge that we should repent of this, that we have relegated men and women to strata's that uh, which we have no right to. And yet, none of us are different. We are all sinners, born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We all are far from you without Christ, and from our birth we have rejected you. We thank you, Lord, for reaching into our lives, for bringing salvation, for sovereignly reigning over our lives, and for bringing us to yourself. We thank you that you have kept us and that you sanctify us, and that day by day we're able to live out the truth of this word. We pray that what we have read from your word this morning and heard from your word may change our lives so that you may be glorified, that, cross, that Christ may be honored, and that the Holy Spirit may have free sway in our lives as we live with him day by day. In Jesus' name we pray this, and for his sake alone, amen.